oldest sermon in the world was also the best. Though preached to the smallest audience, it was proclaimed by the greatest preacher in the universe. It was addressed specially, guess who? To the devil. There never has been a sermon like it for brevity. It lasted less than a minute. And I won't do as well as that in this half hour. There never has been a sermon like it for scope. It spoke of the nature of man and of God, of the first advent and the second. It covered all church history. In a few broad strokes, this first sermon ever preached comprehended millenniums of time and all the chief events of human existence. Furthermore, every other sermon ever preached was inside this one, just as every oak was in the first acorn, or should we say, every oak in the first oak. I remember as a boy first reading the sermon, but I just glided over it and saw next to nothing. Later, as a young man, I read that Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, and I've never forgotten the glory I saw then in Genesis 3.15. Indeed, today I'll say some things I learnt then, 35 years ago. After all, wasn't it Spurgeon who said, he who does not read will never be read, and he who does not quote will never be quoted, and he who does not use other men's brains shows he has no brains of his own. We don't want to make that mistake in this program. Well, here's the text of the sermon. I'm reading from Genesis 3, verse 15, and God is addressing Satan, the serpent, in Eden, after the fall. But Adam and Eve are listening, and while God is addressing Satan, it's particularly for the sake of Adam and Eve. And there we see ourselves. Our first parents represent you and me. Well, here's the text. I'm reading from the Living Bible, Genesis 3.15. From now on, you and the woman, that is, Satan and the woman, will be enemies, as will all of your offspring and hers. And I'll put the fear of you into the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he shall strike you on your head, while you will strike at his heel. Well, that's a strange sermon. What does it mean? First, let's look at the chapter in which it resides. This third chapter of the Bible is very profound. Here we have a complete analysis of the satanic science of temptation and sin. In this chapter, we see the original limits placed by God upon man, the creature. There's nothing said in the creation story about faith or love, but obedience, that is stressed. For obedience is the evidence of faith and love. We see here in Genesis 3 that Satan offers our first parents profit if they'll only disobey. We hear him insinuate that God is holding back what would really be good for man. Appetite is appealed to through the eye and through the ear. We read in Genesis 3 and verse 6 that when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. 
good for food, delight to the eyes, tree to be desired to make one wise. That's the way the devil always comes to us. He appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's how he came to Christ and his temptation with the bread and then throwing himself down from the temple or worshipping Satan in order to get the kingdoms of this world. Notice also in this chapter that the devil speaks in half-truths. A white lie is usually more successful than one that's entirely black. The devil made sin appear a delightful experience. He said it would make Adam and Eve just like God. Sin always offers profit, but it's always a liar. And please note that it's quite clear in this chapter that the sinner had first to disbelieve God in order to believe the tempter. And when that happens, sorrow follows, inevitably. Sorrow plus excuse-making, recrimination, and fear. Do you remember the first words of man that are recorded in the Bible? Here they are in this chapter. I was afraid and hid myself. Notice man is now self-centred and he is fear-filled and he's running. That's a fair summary of human nature, even in the 20th century. Self-centred, filled with fear and running. Running from he knows not what. Despite all this, the guilt of man, the folly of our first parents, we read in the chapter about the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's Genesis 3.8. Will you note how the Lord comes forth to Adam? Notice when he comes and how he comes. He comes walking, says the text. He was in no haste to smite the offender. He wasn't flying upon the wings of the wind. He wasn't hurrying with his fiery sword unsheathed, but he was walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, not in the dead of night, when the natural glooms of darkness might have increased the terror of the criminal. Not in the heat of the day, lest he should imagine that God came in the heat of passion. God didn't come in the early morning, as if in a hurry to punish. But God came at the close of the day. For our God is long-suffering, slow to anger and of great mercy. He came in the cool of the evening, when the sun was setting upon Eden's last day of glory, when the dews began to weep for man's misery, when the gentle winds with breath of mercy breathed upon the hot cheek of fear, when earth was silent that man might meditate, when heaven was lighting her evening lamps that man might have hope in the darkness, then and not till then came forth the offended father. So we see the love of God right here. Now notice this sermon again. From now on, says God to Satan, you and the woman will be enemies, as will all of your offspring and hers. And I'll put the fear of you into the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, one particular offspring of the woman, shall strike you on your head, while you will strike at his heel. Now, obviously, the first layer of meaning has to do with the natural enmity between mankind and snakes, but that's not tremendously important. There's much more intended. The serpent is a symbol of Satan, so we are told in Revelation chapter 12. It's told about that great dragon that was cast out of heaven, the old serpent, 
and Satan. And even the story is a figure of the church, we're told that in the end of Ephesians chapter 5. So let us marvel, first of all, at the mercy of God, the wondrous mercy in proclaiming from the first his purpose of redemption, because that's what this sermon is about. God's telling the devil he's not going to have it all his own way, but while he's won the woman over to his side, God will put enmity in her heart against him. There'll be many among mankind that will fight the devil, that will not give way to his temptations, that will stand up for right and truth and purity and God. And furthermore, God is promising that one particular descendant of the woman will destroy the serpent, even though it will cost him something. The serpent's head is to be crushed. But the one who does the crushing, one who springs from the woman, of her descent will have his heel bruised. So the sermon is a proclamation of redemption. We would have thought there would have been all judgment, but it's promise. Promise. There are to be two seeds, the seeds of the devil and the seed of the woman. There's to be enmity between the two. Evil's not to have its own way and good will not be without impediment. Each seed will have a representative, Satan in one case, Christ in the other. These champions will also fight and the serpent's head will be crushed as we've seen. But at some expense to him who does the crushing. It's a judgment, right enough, but it's also a promise. It's like the cross itself. That was a judgment upon all mankind. But in the cross is found the promise and the assurance of eternal life to all of mankind who will receive it. The situation's like the fiery sword that guarded the way to the tree of life, also mentioned in the same third chapter. God comes to us through judgment. When he administers pain, it's for our good. Well, I want you to observe one other thing. Here in Genesis 3, we should ask the question, what was the punishment that followed the first Adam's sin? In order to appreciate the redemption that's promised, let's ask, what was the punishment? Well, if you begin at verse 17 of this chapter, we can trace a sevenfold consequence upon the entrance of sin into this world. And please note, this sevenfold consequence is fulfilled again in the seed of the woman, Christ, when he comes as Redeemer. Well, let's note. First, the ground was cursed. Secondly, in sorrow, man was to work at it all the days of his life. Third, thorns and thistles the ground would bring forth. Fourth, man is told that in the sweat of his face he is to eat bread. Fifth, he is told that unto dust he is to return. Sixth, a flaming sword is to bar the way to the tree of life. And lastly, there is the execution of God's threat that in the day man partook of the forbidden fruit he should surely die. Now, please note with me how the seed of the woman, Christ, there's the full consequences of, it, of man's sin. Galatians 3.13 says he was made a curse for us. There's the first thing. The ground was cursed. Christ becomes a curse for us. Secondly, so thoroughly was Christ acquainted with grief that scripture calls him the man of sorrows. Remember, in sorrow, Adam was to eat the fruit of the ground. Christ was the man of sorrows. 
Third, we read about Jesus. When he came forth to the Jews, presented by Pilate, he came forth wearing the crown of thorns. Thorns and thistles sprang up as a result of sin. Christ wore the thorns. Fourth, corresponding with the sweat of his face in which the first man was to eat his bread, we read concerning Adam the second, our Lord Jesus, his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Read Luke 22, verse 44. Fifth, as the first Adam was to return unto the dust, to dust thou shalt return, we read the cry of Christ in that wonderful prophetic psalm, Psalm 22 and verse 15, Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Sixth, the sword of justice that barred the way to the tree of life. That sword, my friend, was sheathed in the sight of God's Son. For of old God had said, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. That's Zechariah 13 and verse 7. And lastly, seventh, the counterpart of God's original threat to Adam, namely spiritual death, for he didn't die physically that day. That is witnessed in the most solemn of all cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So note, please, how absolutely our Lord Jesus Christ identified himself with those that were lost. He took their place. He suffered the just for the unjust. Christ in his own body bore the curse entailed by the fall. Now, my friend, I want you to think on something. Scripture says that Christ was the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. It's quite apparent from this promise that all was foreseen. Have you ever thought about it? The food we eat is stamped with the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is reflected in every water spring. It's stamped on every loaf of bread. Never does one, saint or sinner, eat his daily bread, but he is living by the flesh and blood of Christ. What do I mean? I mean this, that Adam and Eve would have died indeed, not just spiritually, but altogether, had not Christ, the Son of God, volunteered to take our place. Do you see the marvel of that, my friend? Right there when we fell, the Son of God offered himself as a ransom. He would uphold the law and show that it could not be flouted by suffering its extreme penalty. And he would suffer it in such a way as to break the heart of the sinner that whoever looked at the suffering Son of God might become a penitent and come back into harmony with that sacred law which is a reflection of God's own character. There's something else we should observe. That through Christ, man is actually a gainer in God's wonderful miracle of wisdom and grace. The redeemed have gained more through the last Adam than they lost through the first. They will occupy a more exalted position. Before the fall, Adam dwelt in an earthly paradise. But the redeemed host, they've been made to sit with Christ in heavenly places. By grace now, by imputation, in the reckoning of God, but one day in reality. Through redemption, the redeemed have been blessed with a nobler nature than Adam the first. Before the fall, man possessed a natural life. But now in Christ, we are made partakers of the divine nature. We who believe have obtained a new standing before God, 
Adam was just innocent. That's a negative condition. But believers in Christ are righteous. That's a positive condition. We share a better inheritance. Adam was Lord of Eden. But believers are heirs of all things. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Through grace, we've been made capable of a deeper joy than unfallen spirits have ever known. The bliss of pardoned sin, the heaven of deep conscious obligation to divine mercy. In Christ, believers enjoy a closer relationship to God than was possible before the fall. Adam was only a creature, but we're members of the body of Christ, members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Is it not wonderful? We have been taken into union with deity itself. The Son of God is not ashamed to call us brethren. The fall provided the need of redemption. And through the redeeming work of the cross, believers have a portion which unfallen Adam could never have attained to. Is it not true, as scripture says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Well, let's look even more closely at the sermon than we have so far. It applies not only to the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, Ishmael and Isaac, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, not only these opposites, one in the kingdom of the devil and one in the kingdom of God. But each finds its ultimate head in the representative. Satan, Christ. Do you understand what it means, my friend? God was promising here the cross, which would destroy the devil. Hebrews 2 and verse 14 says that by death, Christ destroyed him. It had the power of death. Scripture says that Christ on the cross overcame principalities and powers. He made a public example of them. He triumphed over them by his cross. That's what's meant by the destroying, the crushing of the head of the serpent. But it was done at the expense of Christ's heel. The bruising of Christ's heel was at Calvary. It wasn't the crushing of his head because he rose again the third day. Please observe that. And so here is the coverage of church history. The two seeds of the followers of Satan and the followers of the woman. The two representatives, Satan and Christ. The first advent where the devil was defeated and the second advent. It's full of mercy, this wonderful sermon. You notice God said, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman. Now the woman and the devil had united to fight God. That relationship must be sundered. And God says, I'll put enmity. You and I, my friends, are by nature in love with the devil. There's a love affair for you. One that leads to death. But God says that for those that believe, he will put enmity between them and the devil. That's what happens at conversion. When we really discover that sin is a destroyer and that righteousness is life, that God is for us and not against us, that there is forgiveness with him, when we learn that, we come to hate the old devil and all his works. The seed of the woman, it is a revelation of him that creates the enmity as nothing else does. 
You know, my friend, Christ is the theme of all Bible prophecy. We hear a great deal these days about Israel and Palestine and Megiddo. But the centre of all Bible prophecy, as with this first prophecy, is Christ Jesus. Sometime read Galatians 3 and verse 16, which tells us that all the Old Testament promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. But then it says that that seed is Christ. The true Israel are those who are in Christ. Read the last verses of Galatians 3. If ye are Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Romans chapter 2 says he's not a Jew which is one outwardly, but he's a Jew which is one inwardly, whose circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. So Christ is the theme of all Bible prophecy. And Christ's Israel are those that are in him by faith. And there's a good way to test prophetic interpretations. Do they make Jesus the centre? This prophecy is the first of scripture, and it's all about Jesus, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 that all the promises of God in him are yea and amen. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Read the story of the temptation, read of Gethsemane, read of the cross. There we see the devil trying to bruise his heel. But Christ overcame the world, the flesh and the devil. His human nature died, the heel, the lower part. But the bruise was not mortal, nor is it continual. Now is Christ risen from the dead. Let me ask you next, whether your experience fulfills all of this. Have you experienced the first work of grace, God's placing enmity between you and the old life? We're all born fools. It takes a long time for some of us to wake up to the fact that sin does not profit. But when at last, by the grace of God, we learn it, then, my friends, we have enmity against the old devil who's deceived us for so long. Do you have that enmity? Have you turned against the old habits of hatred and selfishness and impurity and blasphemy? Have you known what it is to place the grave of Christ between your old life and the new? Secondly, has Christ been formed in you as the hope of glory? Are you trying to live on your own, my friends? That's asking for failure. None of us are sufficient for life. But when we believe Christ is formed within the heart through the Holy Spirit. You need never feel alone anymore. You need never be inadequate anymore. For you have Christ. You have God. The angels are all ministering spirits to those who are heirs of redemption when Christ is formed within. Have you experienced the bruised heel? It's not easy to be a Christian, my friend. You'll stand out like a sore thumb in the crowd around you. People will ridicule you. They may laugh at you. People don't like others to be different. That's threatening to them. Sin itself will torment us. We don't say goodbye to temptation when we become Christians. Indeed, we experience it much more. We're fighting with the tempter now because we're opposed to him. Some people have never met the devil. That's because they're going in the same direction. Two parallel lines never meet. But when you fight the old tempter, you're in the midst of the battle. The arrows fall thickly now. Have you experienced the bruised heel? The troubles and persecution, 
has inevitably come to those in Christ, but which weave for us a crown of glory at last? And finally, has the serpent's head been bruised and broken in you? In Romans 6 and verse 14, it says, Sin shall have no more dominion over you. You know why, my friends? It says you're not under law, but under grace. When we see that a soul is justified by faith, regardless of its success in keeping the law, when we see that, then we yearn to keep the law. Then we yearn to glorify God. Then we want to live for Christ with all we've got. My friend, has the serpent's head been broken in you? Let me close by a word of encouragement. When Adam received this word, he also received the cloak of Christ. What do I mean? He was given the skins of the sacrifice to cover him. And if you believe, my friends, that Christ died for you, you are clothed this moment in the righteousness of Christ, an eternal robe, and you have eternal life. Will you not believe this very hour? Believe, receive, and you have eternal life. God bless you, my friends.